We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. It is wonderful to see you here, and uh, we're looking forward to a good time of worship together. Our scripture reading is in Ezekiel 43 this morning, if you would turn there, Ezekiel 43. While you're turning there, I'll just give you a little illustration that will highlight the words of that song. I wonder if you have ever seen the, uh, the chain and anchor system on a huge ship. You know what I'm talking about, brother? How big are the links on those chains? Yeah, I mean, they're just, they're just monster. One, one link would be so heavy to hold. One link? 365 pounds. Okay, says with authority. <laughs> is that a made-up statistic or is that that's real? <laughs> what do they say, like 77% of statistics are made up? <laughs> 76 aren't. <laughs> anyway, you can find online a video of one of those... Uh, chain systems and anchors failing. Uh, there's some kind of brake system or something on the rolling, the system that rolls up the chain. And you, if you've seen this particular video, actually a couple of them I've seen, um, the, it just goes out of control and the chain is just ripping out of the system as quickly as, as the anchor can drop into the, towards the bottom of the ocean. And it overheats the bearing system and then it causes a fire and it's all just crazy. I mean, it's so dangerous to think about. You have a spiritual anchor that will never fail like that. Never fail like that. And it will always bear the strain between, the seeming strain between you and God. It only seems that way, my friends. But God has promised that none that are saved will ever be lost. And so that anchor system will never, ever fail. Let's turn to Ezekiel 43. And I'm... Looking forward to reading this with you this, uh, this morning. As I reviewed it earlier this week, I thought it would be an encouraging and uh, challenging passage for us. Let's see what's here. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city, that is, when he came to prophesy about the destruction. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. Now remember, this is back in chapters 1, 2, and 3 when he's had this vision of, remember that amazing sight that he saw that he was trying to describe with the wheels and the wheels and the colors and the and the throne, and all of this, the appearance of God, he sees this again. And so, 
you can look at Ezekiel and see it's almost like book-ended by the appearance of God in the prophecy. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, this is an extremely significant passage in the book of Ezekiel because you might not remember but I'm here to remind you, in chapters 8, 9, 10, in that area, do you remember what happened with the appearance of God, with the Spirit of God there in Jerusalem? He left. And we made a big deal about that when we read it. This is now, how many, 43 minus 8 weeks ago? That many, that, that many weeks and months ago that we read this, and we saw the Spirit of God leaving the temple Bit by bit, he went to the threshold of the door and then out and out farther to the eastern side of the city over the Mount of Olives, and then he just left because the people of Israel had been disobedient. And now Ezekiel is prophesying to his people, the Spirit of God, the presence of God will come back to you. He will come back to this place, but it's not going to be like it was before. And we're going to see uh, about this as we continue to read on. But it's going to be a much different location where he comes. He left the temple. The temple then was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and armies in 587 B.C. And he's going to return to this newly constructed temple. And you recall we've been reading in chapters 40, 41, 42 about the construction of this, the design of it. You know, not the construction per se, but the architecture of it rather. And uh, he's going to come back to this kind of situation. And so we continue in verse number six. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, nor they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places." When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me and I will dwell in their midst forever. So this is the kind of thing that the people of Israel were missing. The people of Judah, the people of the whole nation were missing because they had defiled the temple and defiled their way with God. And Ezekiel is doing, I think, two things. Really, it's almost shaming them in recognizing what they, were, what they had lost the opportunity to have and then also helping them look forward to a future time when they would have it once again and be an encouragement to those people who were among them yet who were godly. Verse 10, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Here it is that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinance and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So when we were reading 40 and 41, 42, and all those 
architectural specifications, and we were saying, what in the world is this? And this is boring us out of our skulls and all of that. The Bible is telling us when they read that, they were to be ashamed of their sins because the temple, the glory of that temple that God was showing them was going to far exceed the glory of anything they had before, and they botched it. They blew it. Verse 13, these are the measurements of the altar in cubits. So now he's going to go to the dimensions of the altar. And again, these are uh, shame-inducing kind of measurements. These are challenging the people of Israel. And they should remind us, too, of any area in our lives where we have sin and have departed from our God. The cubit, he says, there is one cubit and a hand breadth. I take that to be the royal cubit, so it's longer than the... You typically think of the elbow to the hand as the cubit, but it's another hand breadth long, like, say, four inches. I don't know if that's exact, three and a half, whatever, um, on top of that. So it's a little bit of a longer cubit. But in any case, the base one cubit high and one cubit wide with the rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits, the width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits, and the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim of a half a cubit around it, its base one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. Now, you can get caught up in the dimensions of that and forget the bigger picture that there is an altar he's talking about. And what do you do on an altar? You make sacrifices on the altar. And so this has been much maligned. That is to say, the plain literal interpretation of this has been much maligned because people will say, well, what do you mean? There's going to be sacrifices again? If this is a future prophetic context, then absolutely yes, and it is. There will be sacrifices again. This will challenge our understanding of what those sacrifices will mean in the future because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, but it will also challenge, I think, a misunderstanding of what sacrifices were in the past. Sacrifices in the past, listen, never saved anybody. So sacrifices in the future do not impinge upon the work of Christ because they don't save anybody either, right? These were a teaching tool. These were a way of of, uh, dealing with uh, uh, sin and criminal uh, activity in the the, uh, Old Testament kingdom and the payment that was necessary for that, an instructional tool pointing to Christ. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. By the, by the repetition of those things, constant reminder was made, but never was there full atonement. And so when we read this, don't, well, how can I say this? I don't let this bother me at all because God knows what God's doing. And if I'm misunderstanding it, it's not a problem in God. It must be a problem with me. So I've got to figure out, okay, how does that change my understanding? See, some people think, well, they were saved by doing animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Well, tell that to Abraham when it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was not an animal sacrifice that saved any single soul ever. Those were expressions of faith, expressions of obedience, certainly. 
Just like going to church never saves anybody. But you better be here. (laughs) It's an expression of faith and it's an expression of obedience. Yes, isn't it? That's right. So we have our own, you know, system, if you will, of things that God has asked us to do in this age, different than what they had in the past, and he will yet again ask in the future. We carry on. I'm getting, I'm getting carried away here, actually. I've got to keep reading, okay? Uh, consecrating the altar now. In verse 18, he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. There it is. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, Zadok, who approached me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Then you shall also take a bull of the sin offering and burn it on the appointed, uh, in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priests shall throw salt on them, and they will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day for seven days, you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar. I will accept you, says the Lord God. So there are consecrating offerings and then after it's prepared, it's just ongoing offerings again. Isn't that amazing? Well, we'll look more at that another time when we have an opportunity to read some more, but uh, not for now. So God bless the reading of his word this morning. We believe today that God has ordained for us to look at the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah as we come near to the end of this short series in the book. Jonah is going to get the ribbons tied on his lesson today. God teaches Jonah... I'm sure among other things, but this is one that it is right to be concerned even for evil people. Jonah had a second chance from God, as you recall. Nineveh also had what we might call a second chance. God illuminated them to the need of their souls through the preaching of a destroying judgment that would come upon them if they did not respond favorably and repent And so somewhat paradoxically, and this is one of the marvels of God's wisdom, God used the preaching of destruction as an act of mercy on the souls of these people. Many of you may have experienced a similar kind of thing in your lives when you heard the message of punishment for sin and said, I cannot go there. I must leave that behind and go somewhere else. And so you responded in repentance. We also learned in chapter 3 how the Ninevites made good use of that opportunity to forestall judgment, and God saw their 180-degree turn and relented from the disaster that he had promised, but this raised some hard feelings in Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was, this, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 4, then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. Might as well say he went out there to sulk. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, that he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Now here's an object lesson, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Look at Jonah's emotions about this turn of events in Nineveh. He was very displeased and angry. His anger level rose and rose and rose as he saw that it was what was developing in the city and how judgment was not actually going to be poured out upon these wicked people. We looked at all the history of the Ninevites. We looked at why he would feel this way, and we know that the evil that yet they would accomplish and do, and you can read... Uh, other books in the scriptures and see this. You can see in Isaiah, you can read Nahum and these different places. But what exactly was Jonah mad about? First of all, that the people of Nineveh had repented. They shouldn't have done that. That makes me mad, he says, you know. Evidently, his thought was that it was not right for them to have an opportunity to repent, nor to actually do repent. What about you, Jonah? What about you? What about us? Secondly, he was angry about God relenting from the disaster. He felt they deserved it because they were so wicked. Nineveh was evil, he knew. And if you read the Hebrew text, it's, it's almost shocking what it says. It says, it's put in English here in a way that kind of masks a little bit how the parallel is, but Nineveh was evil, right? We got that. He says it was exceedingly evil in Jonah's sight, basically, is what it means. It was like an excessive evil that to Jonah that they were not being punished, which means that Jonah basically thinks it is evil of God not to judge them. What a turnabout this is. Nineveh was in fact evil and did deserve judgment for what they did. But so is every sinful 
person in every city and every civilization. But now he's saying instead of Nineveh being evil, he's saying God is. That's what people do when they get angry with God, isn't it? God can't do that. I know better than God. Now, was Jonah upset, perhaps, and some have speculated this, that his record as a prophet would be damaged? You know, he just went into a city and prophesied judgment. Now the judgment's not going to come. How do you tell what a false prophet is? Well, if he prophesies something and then his prophecy doesn't come to pass. So he'd be guilty of a false prophecy and thus discredited as a man of God. But we alluded in our last study to a reason why that explanation is not accurate. And that's because of the implicit condition attached to the 40 days and then judgment proclamation. Remember, we said that this is not a contradiction in God. Like he said, okay, you're going to be judged. And then later on, God changes his mind because of some unforeseen circumstance. Oh, they actually repented. Oops, I didn't think of that. No, he doesn't operate that way at all. Um, Look at Jeremiah, uh, by the way, Jeremiah 36 for an illustration of this. Jeremiah in chapter 36 in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations. From the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day, it may be... So that's interesting. Number one, he's telling Jonah, put every, or Jonah, Jeremiah, sorry, to put everything down in a book. And we're actually looking at it here. Actually, the second edition, if you will. You'll, you'll see why if you continue to read this. But it may be that the house of Judah will bear, hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, okay, like 40 days and then judgment, that everyone may turn from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. You see that? Why did God write about all these judgments? To get them to repent. It was an act of mercy of of God. Sending Jonah to the Ninevites, even though Jonah didn't want to go, was God's vehicle by which his mercy would be extended to them, even though it sounded like a, you know, that's a poor way to show mercy by saying you're going to be judged. Well, sometimes that's all that people will listen to. That's all that they'll get. So Jonah was not angry that his record as a prophet would be damaged. There was a condition in that prophecy. Um, And in fact, you know, if you were to say, well, you know, if you just kind of isolated your thinking to God's actions toward Nineveh, you would say, well, that's really nice how he treats the Gentile people. But he treats his own people the exact same way. He, wrote, he told Nineveh, repent, or, or you're going to be destroyed, opportunity for repentance, they repented. He writes the whole book of Jeremiah, opportunity for you people to repent. And the leaders in the nation read the book, and what did they do with it, Ann? They cut it off, scrolled piece by piece, and threw it into the fire and burned it. And so God said to Jeremiah and to Baruch, his scribe, you've got to write it again and, and add some more to it, too. You know, because they deserve it. Um, very bad situation there. But so God treats his people the same, the, the people of the Jews, just as well, just like the, the Gentile Ninevites. So go over this idea again. Jonah was mad that people repented. 
He was angry that God was merciful. Does that make sense? Is that logical? Are you ever angry about that sort of thing? It's entirely backwards. The scripture says, not that there's anger in heaven over one sinner who repents. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So why is Jonah upset? I remember another situation like this with the Pharisees. They're angry that the Lord Jesus was spending time with the tax collectors and sinners. And he responded, you know, look, it's not the righteous that need a, a help, or it's, it's the sick who need a, a physician, not the well who need a physician. So he's going to go to spend time with those who are sick and know they're sick and know they have some kind of need of help. And so they were angry like uh, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal. Remember him? Self-righteous fellow who thought he was so good, but he hadn't also repented of his sins. Luke 18 tells the story of a Pharisee who was self-congratulatory, basically standing at the temple praying to himself, but also the tax collector who cried out to God for mercy, and that tax collector was justified by his faith. The Pharisee was abased, not justified before God. Strangely, the Ninevites are like the tax collector in this parable, and Jonah is like the Pharisee. Look at the point. The point of that parable, by the way, in Luke 18, verse 9, was that those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jonah? I almost could say he's kind of a Pharisaical prophet. Of course, before the Pharisees you know, came about, it's a long time in history before, but still. So Jonah's upset. So what does he do? Well, in verse 2, it says he prayed. Well, that much is okay, uh, good first instinct. But he's going to expose a huge embarrassment to his character here by what he says. He starts out by saying, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Basically, I knew this is what you were going to do, so it was useless for me to come here. This is where his repentance shows itself to be incomplete. He kind of repented, but now he's going back on it. Sometimes we waffle a little bit too, don't we? We repent and then we kind of pull back and then we have to repent fully. God is teaching us something through Jonah. And let's try to learn it, get, after, get a little closer to that truth today and be thankful that we can learn through the flawed experience of the prophet rather than learning the hard way ourselves. Much easier to learn this way. Now, before Jonah went to Nineveh in chapter 1. We don't have a record there of his motivation. We just said it was just disobedience. He just didn't listen to God. He didn't obey what God said. But he says what his motivation was here that gives us some insight. Now, when I'm reading Jonah chapter 1, maybe you've had this experience, ignoring chapter 4 for just a second, I often imagine the prophet being so disgusted at the Ninevites perhaps fearful that he, you know, he doesn't want to go there, he's revulsed by them, uh, and perhaps there were elements of that present in his mind. But this gives us a more nuanced insight into what Jonah was thinking. Jonah's reasoning was this, because God is gracious and merciful, he would give the Ninevites an opportunity to respond favorably and withhold judgment. 
This judgment is so deserved by them that I'm going to make sure that they don't hear the message so they can't repent, so they'll get what they deserve. Because God is gracious, I can't take any chances with God's grace that they'll actually respond. So I'm fleeing. So what you know, he thinks, God should not say anything to them. Uh, don't give them an opportunity to be converted. Let the time clock run out on mercy and finally pour out judgment in abundance. Now, Jonah is he's right and he's wrong at the same time. How is he right? Well, if you look at, at Exodus chapter 34, you will see a, a well-known statement about God. Uh, did I say 34? Yes, 6, 34, 6. And the Lord, this is passing before Moses, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the fourth, third and fourth generations. My emphasis is to extract from that the truth that God is compassionate, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's God's character. So Jonah is right about that. Jonah is objecting to God and God's behavior as God really is. God, I'm objecting to you because of your mercy and grace. But he is nowhere near right to make that, those attributes of God, along with his ethnic hatred toward the Ninevites, an excuse for being angry or an excuse to be disobedient or an excuse to want to die. Totally wrong. So Jonah fled from God and disobeyed him because he felt that God was probably going to be merciful to an evil people and relent from destroying them. Again, I ask, what kind of logic is that? A person who has a character like God would rejoice that God is going to be merciful to others because that person himself has experienced the mercy of God. Isn't it true? When you've experienced mercy... You can appreciate how God can take the most vile of sinners and transform them by his grace into a new person, a new creation, and you don't get upset about it. Now, that's easy to say in the abstract, but what if that evil person is one who's done you wrong? Okay, put yourself in a hard place. You know, don't just say, well, Jonah, that's easy. Put yourself in the hard place in your mind and say, okay, that person has been evil toward me and now he's repenting and God has forgiven him. What, what does that mean for me? What do I do? So Jonah's thinking very sinfully here. You understand his situation. He's mad at God. He's upset that the Ninevites don't get what they deserve. Um, I wonder if he's actually getting a little wobbly on his promised to God in chapter 2 where he said, I'm going to give you my sacrifices and complete my vows and I'm going to give you thanksgiving. He's getting a little bit shaky here. What's he going to do about this? His promise to be thankful to God seems to be failing here. So Jonah prays that he would die. He's obviously depressed, we might say. You think? A touch of depression? 
But listen to me. This depression is entirely self-inflicted. And I would venture to say that a lot of times, I'm not going to put a percentage on it because the 77% of statistics are made up, okay? Uh, Many times, our depressions are self-inflicted because of our sin. So it can't be an escape hatch or an excuse. He selfishly created the circumstances in his own brain that made him mad, that made him feel badly. And those circumstances that he made in his own head were wrong. Wrong thinking led to a wrong conclusion, led to depression. Now notice, by the way, he did not desire to take his own life. Remember that? What did he say? God, take it from me. Kind of like Elijah, remember? Back in Second Kings, Second Kings, First Kings, I, I, I always have to look it up. It's Second Kings. Thank you. <laughs> I always have to go turn there to find it. Um, chapter eighteen and nineteen. But he didn't want to kill himself. Okay, he knew self-murder was wrong, but he wanted God to take his life. It's better for me to die than to live. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Never think like that. It's better in, in this depressed state. He, he's not talking like Paul and saying, you know, to go and be with Christ is far better because Paul had that other pull. He, he, he had that upward tug, but he had that downward pull to earth and said it's more needful for me to stay here and continue to minister, which, by the way, will mean more fruit for me. And so remember we said that in Philippians when we looked at it in chapter 1 that you know, to go to be with God is good, to be with Christ, to stay here is good. I'm torn between two good things. Jonah didn't have that feeling about, the, about life and the opportunities that life provides. And I've tried to encourage people when I talk to them about this sort of thing. Think of what life provides, what God provides in life, the opportunities to, to express or experience His goodness to uh, be used of God, to be a minister for Him, to serve God, to, to do things, to do things that you enjoy doing. Lots of opportunities. So Jonah's wrong to think this way. Uh, his thoughts are not tempered by the reality of God's good gifts in life. Jonah's thoughts are motivated by pure selfishness. To continue to live, however, is to experience God's mercy and goodness it's to learn and to grow. It's to be corrected of wrong thinking, to continue to live as all of those things. But to desire to cut that off is a sinful desire that would cut one short of many of God's blessings. Verse 4, God responds. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Is it proper? Is it morally upright to think this way? God is rebuking the prophet with this question. I've I was reading a commentary, and I, I had to look at it two or three times, and I still don't think I followed it, but the commentator said God is not rebuking the prophet. I wondered if it was a typo. He is rebuking the prophet, my friend. Uh, the question is rhetorical here. It makes, an effect, an assertion. It is wrong for you to be angry, Jonah. It begs, in a question form, it begs a response from the prophet trying to engage him to think about his sinful logic. The question is repeated in verse number 
Nine, again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Same kind of question, slightly different context. So now God is going to give an object lesson to old Mr. Jonah. He went to the eastern outskirts of the city and set up shop there to see if what he thought was going to happen would, in fact, happen. Maybe he hoped God would destroy the city after all. Perhaps the city's repentance would be short-lived and God would go back to his original plan. Uh, Maybe they were fickle and this was not going to last. So he built a little shelter there and sat under its shade for a while to watch. God then improved his shady situation by creating a plant that grew over Jonah. This would take up some of the heat from the sun and provide further relief for him. And the Bible says, we read on here uh, in verse number 6, he prepared the plant, made it grow up over Jonah that might be a shade. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. He was very happy about this plant. This was great. Um, I'm not sure, though, that he was directing his gratitude toward God for the plant. It was a blessing, and it was from God, but did Jonah understand this? I was sharing with my family earlier this week, or last week now, that I had heard a report by a well-known secular doctor extolling the medical and mental value of gratitude. It's truly good for your health to be thankful, he was saying. Research-based stuff. Well, we could have told you that a while ago, like thousands of years ago, if we just follow the scriptures, things would go well with us. What he missed, that doctor, was that the direction of the thanksgiving has to be toward the one who ultimately gives the gifts to us. He was kind of, you know, the idea of, well, I'm thankful for this, write it in a journal, or, and then get that out when you're down or whatever. But thankful to whom for what? You're thankful for something, that's good. But thankful to whom? To the ether? To fate, Mother Earth, whatever? I mean, no, you have to be thankful to God. Thankful to God. Direct your thanksgiving toward him. Paul uh, gives this model for us. He says, we are bound to give thanks to God for you. Thanks to God for you. Now, so his, his gratitude maybe could have been tuned up here a little bit. Ours too. We need to be grateful to God. The next day, and by the way, I will just tell you, to be, and, and, and this medical report supported it, to be grateful will increase your joy. Even if you're not in super-duper circumstances, trust me, gratitude does that. The next day, however, God brought two judgments against Jonah. I call them judgments. First was the worm. Second was the heat. The worm was a kind of fast-eating type of worm. I kind of imagine maybe a large version of a tomato hornworm. Do you know what those are, those big green worms? And they, they just munch leaves like there's no tomorrow. I mean, they just eat them up. And uh, so he attacked this plant, this worm did, and so its shading ability was destroyed, it withered. Second, God prepared a wind from the east. Um, this is called the Sirocco wind. It blew off the desert and produced a scorching heat. Now, um, the average temperature there I, uh, in this time period, I, I suppose... Somebody's researched maybe when this occurred during the year and assuming that it was the summer because it was so hot, 110 degrees normally in the, in the day, in the afternoon. The Sirocco east wind could blow off the desert and raise that temperature by 12 to 16 additional degrees 
and it would dry you out. I mean, it would take your skin and just, just evaporate any moisture out of it, and it would cause misery, an absolute scorcher. The sun beat down on Jonah and caused him to have what we probably call in medical terms heat stroke. Notice, by the way, that God appointed the storm. He appointed the fish. He appointed the, the vine, the worm, the east wind, the weather, the disposition in the Ninevites to repent, and many other details that are not mentioned expl- explicitly in the account. The heat was miserable. No air conditioning. He wished to die. And so he said so, just like in verse 3. It's better for me to die than to live. Wrong again. Notice the self-inflicted nature of this. Um, If you're feeling down and dejected and wondering what value there is in life, take a step back and look at what you're doing and what you're thinking. Ask someone, a trusted person, a friend, a pastor, a parent, to help you evaluate the big picture. If you're ungrateful and judging people all the time instead of delighting in mercy, what do you expect? You're going to be depressed. What other course of action could Jonah have taken? Well, he didn't have to go to the east side of the city. He didn't have to set up shop there. He could have said, look, my work here is done. I've done what God called me to do. I'm going back home. He could have been thankful that God provided protection for the people of Nineveh by his mouth. Think of it. He could have gone back and said, look at this. God used me to go help these Ninevites as wicked as they were. That's amazing. Thank you, God. And go on his way happy and go, you know, boast to his friends about how God used him or whatever. He could have done something like that. He did not need to subject himself to a miserable situation waiting for God to destroy a city that he was not planning to destroy and then become angry about an east wind and a worm that destroyed the plant. What can I say? Give it up, Jonah. God repeats the question, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? The idea, again, is it's not right for you to be angry about the plant. Why is that? The plant did not belong to Jonah. He did not create the plant. He did not cause the plant to grow. He did not nourish the plant. He did not design the plant. He did not sustain the plant. It was not in his purview to control it or expect it to perform its function. Its existence was a pure grace of God. But Jonah hard-heartedly responds, in effect, yes, it is right for me to be angry, even to die. About a plant? What a childish response. It was not right for him to be angry. It was not justified. It was not reasonable. It was not logical. It was purely selfish on his part. Now we come to the the object lessons point. Jonah was concerned about the destruction of a plant more so than the destruction of a city full of of souls. Now, I could go and kind of make a sort of misapplication about this to the environmental movement. I will withhold myself from doing that, okay? If he was concerned for the plant, why not be concerned as God was for the city and even for its animals? Now, we had a question yesterday about the animals. Fascinating. Why does this text end, end much livestock at the end of the, the verse? God cares for animals. And by the way, righteous people care for animals too. 
Proverbs 12.10 says that the righteous regard the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Wanton destruction of any life is not what God nor his people do. Animals have an important place in God's creation. God's put them there for something. He's designed them, beautifully designed them, marvelously uh, put them there for our enjoyment and for our use. We're stewards over the animals. But wanton destruction is not an attitude that God's people should have. God confronts Jonah because he had pity on the plant, a thing that he did not labor over or make grow Uh, It lived for a day, it died the next day. It was a very little relative value compared to a human or to an animal even. But he did not have have pity over a city of tens of thousands of souls. For neither the plant nor the city did Jonah work, create, cause it to flourish, etc. He had nothing to say over any of that because they were not his. They were God's. They belonged to God. In a similar manner, there was no human you created or caused to grow or cared for like God has done. If God decides to show mercy to that person, that's his prerogative. Who are you to be angry at God for what he decides to do in these matters? Now, the city of Nineveh was a great city because of its population. In it were more than 120,000 people, verse 11 says, who could not discern between the right hand and the left. And, of course, the many animals. Now, what does that mean, the right hand and their left? Well, most naturally, it seems to refer to young people who, if you ask them, you know, uh, show me your right hand, you know, then, (laughs) you know, your your other right, okay? (laughs) Your military right or whatever they called it, right? Um, So, you know, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, something young people that don't quite have it, you know, together yet about, right and left. It could also be a a statement of moral condition. They don't understand the right from the left or the right from the wrong. Um, And so there's a question that is raised here about the identification of these people. I take it to be more the younger uh, people in the city, but that would mean that there's a total population of over half a million in the city. For greater Nineveh, that may be realistic, but it's doubted by some because of the extent of the city uh, geographically and uh, archaeological information, so a number of others suggest that this number, 120,000, covers the entire population, perhaps left and right refers to their moral cluelessness, but the Bible does not leave a lot of space for adults to be called morally clueless. We have been given in the image of God a basic sense of right and wrong, and so we know, for instance, that some of the things that Nineveh was doing were wrong, murder and cruelty and torture and all of those sorts of things. They are morally culpable for their actions and without excuse before God. Let me uh, invite you in your mind to make a contrast between Jonah and Abraham. Jonah was ready to wipe out 120,000 young people, maybe half a million souls. And Abraham says, God Per chance, if there were 50 righteous people in, in uh, Sodom, would you spare the city? 40, 30. Lord, don't be angry. He goes all the way down to 10. If there were 10. Now, there weren't 10, but God spared the ones who were out of that city, Sodom, before he rained fire and brimstone on it for their wickedness. 
But the contrast between Abraham and Jonah could not be more highlighted here. Abraham is all the way down to 10 people, and Jonah is like, burn them all. In the book of Jonah, God's rule over the world is exalted. He oversees the fish, the storm, the Sirocco wind, the worm, the city, and everything else. He sovereignly gives mercy to whom he wills. Do you believe that? He shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and whom he wills he hardens. That's Bible. That's plain old Bible. You might say, well, what do you mean? That's like the, the clay saying to the potter. Remember Paul's argument about that? We can't talk back to God. We have to take what he says at face value seriously and say, okay, if that's what God says, then I better get in line with that. He cares for the world's inhabitants. Get this. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He cares even for evil people. Our city, for example, I used as an illustration last week, remember, is not too far gone is not worthy to just you know, wipe out all 123,000 souls and start over. He has compassion on people. We submit to God's rule. We don't deny his grace to people. But judgment is not postponed forever. Jonah needed to learn Matthew 7, verse 2, and James 2, 13. Judgment without mercy is shown to the one who has shown no mercy. Um, with the judgment that you use, it will be measured out to you again. So better think about how we treat other people if we, uh, as if we don't like God's mercy. If you don't like God's mercy, don't take it for yourself. His own self-interest, Jonas, should have taught him that, but he was not so concerned for others. So I close with this question this morning. For, as for you, do you have any Jonah-like tendencies towards lack of mercy? Uh, do you have any Jonah-like tendencies to ignore the sovereignty of God over his own creation? This is his business. We're his servants to do his bidding, his will, not our will. May his be done. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Jonah and for the lessons that we've gleaned. I know there's more that we can and should say, but we certainly have gleaned a lot already. Father, may you take these things and weave them into our thinking and into our approach in life. And when we feel that our anger is rising against God, may we put a check, put a stop and humble ourselves before you and receive thus your grace because we know that you abase those who exalt themselves and you exalt those who humble themselves. You give grace to the humble, and I pray that we will be that way. We don't understand everything. We don't know why you do everything the way you do, but help us to submit to that will. In Jesus' name, amen.